Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This podcast, You Are Not So Smart, is a one-person operation, which means your support is always very welcome. And you can support the show directly by going to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you get signed books, t-shirts, posters, all sorts of stuff. That's patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 203. I want to start out with Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Here's something that people don't probably wouldn't know unless they picked up your book and read it. Uh, it never really actually was built into a pyramid. That came later. Am I right? Well, yeah, Maslow never drew it as a pyramid. Those were, that was other people that tried to represent, particularly management consultants, that tried to represent his theory. So that is right. That is Scott Barry Kaufman, who is one of the most influential and prolific psychologists working today. In fact, on the day I interviewed him for this podcast, he had interviewed Daniel Kahneman for his podcast, who we both agreed is the most influential psychologist alive. Yeah, for sure. I basically introduced him. It's like, today it's great to talk with the, the greatest living the most influential living psychologist and one of the greatest psychologists of all time. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was cool. <laughs> it was, no, it was great. Um, I, he was very gracious and very, uh, he had a lot of humility. He gave me great advice, um, great advice to people in the field and uh, all sorts of, of amazing things. He's, he's, he's amazing. Yeah. That podcast, by the way, is the number one psychology podcast in the world. It's the Psychology Podcast, and I highly recommend it because Scott is an incredible individual. Scott Barry Kaufman earned his PhD at Yale. He's taught courses on intelligence, creativity, and well-being at Columbia University, NYU, the University of Pennsylvania. That's also where he was the director of the Imagination Institute, where he worked with another titan of psychology, Martin Seligman who created the learned helplessness theory, which we covered on episode 52. 
And Kaufman worked alongside him to create something that is born out of his obsession. Kaufman's obsession is changing the way we measure potential in young people and improving how we encourage growth and imagination and the pursuit of purpose in all of us. He's the author of Ungifted, Wired to Create, Twice Exceptional, The Complexity of Greatness, and a brand new book, Transcend, which is what we're talking about in this episode. He's also a classically trained vocal artist and opera singer who was rejected from American Idol in 2005 and 2007. But despite all of this, despite being named by Business Insider Magazine one of the 50 groundbreaking scientists who are changing the way we see the world, you'd never know that from hanging out with them. Instead, in my experience, you feel seen, heard, respected, challenged, and above all, when you leave a conversation with Scott Barry Kaufman, you do so feeling either like you must work on your purpose in life from that point on, or you must work to find it. Scott Barry Kaufman, I'm a humanistic psychologist interested in, in exploring the depths of human potential. And that's because Scott Barry Kaufman's true purpose, his life mission, his path, is to bring humanistic psychology back to the forefront of the social sciences, and then perhaps to the forefront of the zeitgeist, to this moment, in this era. And what is humanistic psychology, and why is Kaufman so passionate about it? Well, here's a clip from one of Kaufman's lectures. So I really do believe we need a new theory of human intelligence, one that is more holistic and takes into account a child's passions, personal goals, as well as their ability level. Because the more that we engage and are motivated to achieve, the more that increases our actual ability. And the more the ability achieves, it then becomes an upward spiral, where then our engagement is greater as well. And then most importantly, once it's connected to a personal passion or a dream, then we can start to realize a real possibility we have. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you that I, uh, this is deeply personal for me. When I was a child, I was diagnosed with a learning disability called Central Auditory Processing Disorder. It made it very difficult for me to process information in real time. And I was held back in third grade. Uh, as a result, a lot of the kids uh, and teachers thought I was, um, they took my slowness as an indicator of being stupid. And I was kept in special education till ninth grade when a teacher took me aside and she said, you know, I see you. I see your frustration. Why are you still here? And she inspired me. I realized I had no good answer to that question. And she inspired me to see what I was possibly, what was, what was I capable of? Could my capability exceed my capacity that everyone was telling me? And so I took myself out of special education. I signed up for lots of classes. I joined the school orchestra. I joined the choir. By my senior year, most of my friends were in gifted education. And I wanted to be in gifted education. I went to the school psychologist, and I said, you know, I would love to, um, my senior year, be in gifted education. And he, he said, well, you, you look gifted. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> good start. Um, you're, I, I'm getting, you're, I told him I'm getting straight A's. I'm getting straight A's in all my classes. He said, that sounds gifted as well. But I have to see if you're actually gifted. I need to look at your IQ score when you're age 11. So he pulled out my test, my score at age 11, which 
Turned out that my measured IQ at age 11, I've never revealed this in a talk, was borderline mentally, intellectually impaired. And he said, and he took out a bell curve and he said, look, up here on the right, these are the kids who are in your gifted class. These are all your friends, basically. Um, you know, to the left here, um, about in the center is about average. And he moved to the left of the bell curve and said, this is you. I'm sorry, you don't qualify for gifted education. I was so upset um, and shy at that moment, and I just remember thinking to myself, gosh, at what point can my, is my achievement allowed to trump my potential? Um, I knew at that moment that I wanted to do something to change the system. And I applied to Carnegie Mellon University and put in a personal statement. And I said, look, I really want to change our metrics of human potential. And, the, and um, I think far too many people are falling between the cracks in terms of our standard models. And they rejected me to Carnegie Mellon. They said, sorry, your SAT scores are not high enough to redefine intelligence. <laughs> Kaufman would apply again, this time to the opera department, which doesn't check SAT scores, and he auditioned by singing his heart out, and he got a partial scholarship, and then changed his major later on to psychology, and then went on to Yale, and did indeed develop a new theory of human intelligence. He was driven by the fact that his IQ test at age 11 was low mostly because he had an auditory disorder, but also because the test, as Kaufman would later show in his work, is an ineffective measure for human potential. And that's what humanistic psychology is all about, human potential. Instead of cataloging human dysfunction, humanistic psychology catalogs that which helps people strive to maximize their well-being. And it all started in the 1950s as a direct reaction to the pessimism and gloom of psychoanalysis and the cold reductionism of behaviorism, both of which had more or less just become the dominant concepts of what psychology was. Humanistic psychology is instead holistic, and it asks us to look at the whole person, how all of the psychological mechanisms and the context in which they operate work together, and it emphasizes each human's uniqueness and free will, that which motivates us to self-actualize, a term for the drive to use what makes you, well, you, to the fullest, to discover your own capacities and talents, and then use those to, as Carl Rogers put it, become your potential, and as Abraham Maslow put it, to become everything that one is capable of becoming. Which brings us to Maslow and his hierarchy of needs, which is the focus of Kaufman's new book, Transcendence. He starts in the book by explaining that that hierarchy of needs, that pyramid you've likely seen a zillion times, was never supposed to be a pyramid. Of all things, we have management schools to blame for that interpretation. This construction was popularized by management books and textbooks in the 1960s and 70s that drew from Maslow's work to create a ladder of needs as a way of imagining how to best motivate employees to maximize job satisfaction and, of course, 
productivity. The idea, which is still popular today, is that people must satisfy the lowest needs first, physiological ones like food and sleep, before they can meet the next level up, shelter and safety. And then after that, they can work on relationships. And after that, they can actually work on work. And if they do that long enough, they can work on creative pursuits. But Maslow was very explicit about this not being what he meant by all of this. He wrote that this was a false impression of his theory. When he laid out those needs, he said it was only in the extreme that a person would be more focused on one than the other. Like, for instance, starving in the desert or stranded on a deserted island. Outside of these rare instances, he wrote that most people, quote, are partially satisfied in all their basic needs and partially unsatisfied in all their basic needs at the same time, end quote. And he added that, quote, any behavior tends to be determined by several or all of these basic needs simultaneously rather than by only one of them. One more thing about Abraham Maslow. He was a psychologist who loved human beings, and he wanted his branch of science to put as much effort into thinking about what made people happy as it put into contemplating the sources of mental sickness and cataloging the flora and fauna of the disturbed mind. In the 1960s, he wrote a book about the dangers of reductionism in psychology, and Maslow knew that researchers tended to dig and dig until they got down to the nitty-gritty and eventually explained the nature of a thing at the smallest level possible. And that made him queasy to think of people in that way. Holistic mental health, personal growth, self-actualization, that was Maslow. He knew the human mind was a complex thing and that scientists often sought an understanding of complex things by documenting their atomic and chemical cogs and gears. And that approach worked well when studying galaxies or metabolism or fault lines. When it came to the human mind, he felt there was a need for science to spend time on the big picture, the weather patterns of human behavior, the ones that emerge from the butterfly wings flapping at the level of synapses and axons. It was unclear at the time how one might study the nature of things like curiosity, altruism, compassion, and humor in an empirical, measurable way. Some believe those things might be better left to metaphysics and just left out of hard science. But Maslow saw that as a handicap. He compared it to an automatic car wash, which was a minor marvel at the time, that can only be considered marvelous in one context, washing cars. In the same paragraph he wrote about that, he wrote... I suppose it is tempting, if the only tool you have is a hammer, to treat everything as if it were a nail. And that's where we get that expression from. And that's where our guest, psychologist Barry Kaufman, comes in. When he started going through Maslow's unpublished journals, his lectures, his essays, he discovered that Maslow was working on a new theory beyond the hierarchy of needs, a theory of transcendence which he did not live to finish. And in his new book, Kaufman aims to pick up where Maslow 
left off. And you'll hear him talk all about it after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many, you can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses 
which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number, 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I, when I went to school and before I switched to journalism, uh, I was going into, I wanted to be a therapist and I was studying Rogerian therapy. And I remember that oh, being nice. introduced to that world. And uh, I still think about it all the time. And uh, the things I learned in that program, like eventually made their way into what I'm doing now, but I still have a gigantic uh, love for Rogerian and, and Maslow and the whole thing that you embody fully and are the modern representation of and are the go-to person to talk about those things. So I just am really, really happy to just even be, have a chance to talk to you at all. I just want you to know, this really is an honor to be. So it's really great. It's just an honor to be on your show as well. Tell me why this became a fascination for you to the point that you were like, I'm going to write a book about it. Why, why is anything a, a fascination for anyone? Um, does the person ever really know? But, but, but <laughs> okay. that aside. All right. <laughs> that aside. Uh-huh. You know, um, the, whole, the whole free will debate aside. Um, I didn't know we were going to go all the way there. Well, this is where my mind goes. Um, but that aside, um, I was doing a preparation for uh, my positive psychology class at Penn, and came across the writings of Abraham Maslow, and I was just captivated. Um, I felt like we're speaking the same language, uh, same we're on the same frequency, and dived into his personal journals, and uh, and then one rabbit hole led to another rabbit hole, and I realized that he had been really misrepresented. So much of his way of thinking um, had been really. Um, misunderstood and I was like there's no pyramid where's the pyramid and then that one thing led to the next thing and um, and then I saw he was working on a new theory of transcendence and I just felt a sense of responsibility to 
to tell this truth about Maslow? Well, something that hit me right away, and I've already shared this with a bunch of people because I've already stolen this from you and, and spread it around, is that um, so often that's looked at as a ladder or a series of video game levels is how you actually put it in the book. And if I keep going, I'll eventually max out. I get max level and then, you know, I've finished. Um, or it's also, as you you write about how it's, there's a metaphor of like climbing a mountain. And once you get to the top, I guess you can build a self-actualization palace and live in it for the rest of your life. But you say that that's not a good metaphor. You say sailboat is a better metaphor. Why is that? Well, I think that life is more of an experience than some sort of trek up a mountain where you step on people on the way to the top. Um, you know, we're all ultimately in the same sea together, even though we're in our own boat going in our own direction. Um, but the waves can come crashing down on all of us at the same time. There's so much unknown of the sea. Um, you know, part of the experience of life is realizing that, um, uh, that, that nothing's uh, for certain. I mean, everything is about, everything is change. And, uh, and we have to be open to that. Uh, it's kind of a very Buddhist philosophy that I that I think is is, is a, a better framing of life than than a um, than than a pyramid. And also, we have our our basic security needs, which represent the boat itself, um, the needs for safety, security, and self esteem. Um, and you can, and you can't go far if you have too many holes in the boat. Uh, if your basic needs are too unmet, it's hard to move in your most valued direction. But Ultimately, if your boat is safe and secure, you need to open up your sail um, and, uh, and, 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 and have the spirit of exploration, love, and, and, uh, and, and purpose and move towards an island or a, a vocation that you have a vision, even though you can't see it yet visually. You just have it in your head of where you're going. And uh, I just think there's so many ways the sailboat is a good metaphor for life. I love this so much and I'm taking it and I'm, uh, I'm going to spread the good word of the sailboat. I like this idea a lot. I was telling somebody earlier today that I was going to talk to you and I just went ahead and kind of talked for 10 minutes about the sailboat idea. And I was, my construction of it was like, you know, all the parts have to be working together and then you can, the wind, you don't have to, you can, um, uh, partner with the wind to get places and you can discover places you didn't think you might be going. And there's the metaphor just keeps unfolding and unfolding and unfolding when you stop looking at it as a uh, stepwise process to reach a certain place. And once you're there, you're done. And instead it's like, how do I create this vessel for further exploration for continuous perpetual exploration and continuous perpetual um, communion, commiseration and connection, which is all, all that's wrapped up in there. Um, I don't know. I love it a lot. I feel like that's a great gift that you gave me and you didn't even know you were going to give me that gift. And I just want to say, I really appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> that warms my heart. That warms my heart. <laughs> <laughs> it feels really good. I love it. Um, and I, I really dug on Maslow too. I don't, I certainly have not had as much exposure to his writings and ideas as you have, but in a very limited, much very limited degree that I have when I was, um, uh, trying to earn a degree, I was, uh, I also felt the same way. Uh, same with Carl Rogers and Maslow were really, um, it was just when you're like going through the, the pantheon of the, uh, psychological gods, you're like, Hmm, this one does this. And this one says this, and these, that's neat. And that person had a cool idea. And this one mate was really concerned about conformity. And then you roll into these guys and they're like, I'm trying to figure out 
the whole thing. Like I want to feel the, the, I want to embrace the mystery of my humanity and then just kind of sit with that. And it was the idea that a scientist would think in that way. The idea that a person who was committed to evidence-based, uh, you know, scientific method, stuff and big R rationality and all the rest would then be so committed to allowing for mystery and allowing for, um, allowing for the very concept that, um, maybe we need to reorganize the, our very society to help us reach something that is right there waiting for us. I don't know. All that was very appealing to me in a way that I didn't know that science could talk in that way. Did you have something similar? Oh, absolutely. Um, the, uh, the, the, the language that humanistic psychologists were talking about resonated with my soul so much more than modern day, uh, psychology language. Um, modern day psychology is obsessed with words like happiness, achievement, success, um, uh, but humanistic psychologists were very interested in, in, in growth and health and creativity and spirituality and, um, what it means to be a, a vital human, to live a vital experience given the, uh, givens of human experience, the paradoxes of human experience. There was something that was much deeper to me that I, um, is the reason why I call myself a humanistic psychologist. And very few people these days call them, very, that you don't see many people in the field of psychology calling themselves humanistic psychologists. That's a shame. If I, if I, I did, I did in a cheeky way. Yeah. <laughs> if I had a different, there's some timeline where I also went down the path of humanist, uh, psychology. So I, I feel very kindred in this way. And I, I love that you're, um, I think the book is being promoted and you can correct this if this is, uh, but I do see that your book is being promoted as a reimagining of the hierarchy of needs or it's a reboot of it in some way. Is that how you feel as well? Yeah. 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 I do feel that way. Um, I also just, um, I feel like a kinship to Maslow. I feel like he's a dear friend I never met. And that's actually what I wrote in my uh, dedication to him. Uh, the book is dedicated to Matt Abraham Maslow, a dear friend I never met. Um, I feel like it's, uh, it's a continuation. Um, you know, I continued writing the pages that he, uh, he left on the table when he had his heart attack all of a sudden. And that, you know, someday there'll be someone, hopefully, um, who who carries on my work, you know, and I think that's what life's all about is being able to contribute as much as you can in, in your short lifetime, uh, that can be transcendent when you're no longer here. That is beautiful. I, I want to explore what you mean by transcendence last, but, and I want to go through safety, connection, self-esteem, exploration, love, and purpose. But before all that, uh, and we'll go through them as, uh, without the take up, all your day, but I, <laughs> you open the book with through his research on, I'm reading your words through his research on self-actualizing people. Maslow discovered that those who are reaching the full heights of their humanity tend to possess the characteristics, characteristics most of us seek in life. What does that mean? People who Maslow studied as being self-actualized tended to be good people they tended to be the kinds of people that had characteristics that gave them uh that that would give any of us a fulfilling life i think that's what i meant by that mm -hmm. 
However, you go on to say Maslow did not prescribe that one must be this way. It was his belief that if society could create the conditions to satisfy one's basic needs and the freedom to speak honestly and openly about all of this, um, we would naturally and organically tend to move toward those uh, characteristics. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, I don't know what to say about that. It feels so, I th- I've been so polluted and corrupted and poisoned by the culture in which I have moved for all these years that it feels Pollyanna-ish, even though I deeply desire this to be true. How do you reconcile that? That, that I, do you feel that same? I mean, you can't at this point being so inundated, but like, how do you reconcile those, like the optimism and pessimism that feels like are in conflict as soon as I start wanting Maslow to be right? Yeah. I think it's very easy in this, this day and age to have a cynicism. I think that's the easy route. Um, uh, but I, I also don't, I also think that the, the route that, that the Maslow warned against as well is, is decreeing that people must be a certain way. Um, people have to find their own journey of self-actualization and, you know, one can preach as much as they want love, you know, and say, oh, everybody needs to be more loving or we need to all just get together. But that's not going to intrinsically motivate a person to have love. Um, I think a big point of this is that if you want to create a society where people are loving people, you need to create a, a loving society. Um, you can't have a shitty society and expect people to just be loving people. So, um, I think this is just part of part of the point of what what Mazo was saying is that uh, if we can create the conditions where people are feel safe, secure, um, connected, uh, supported, um, and uh, and and have a sense of esteem for what they do in their work, then these things that we care about and want in humanity uh, will emerge will merge more naturally. Maybe not all the time. Uh, uh, there is there there is a realism there, of course. Uh, uh, assholes will continue to be assholes. But, uh, you know, to a certain degree, you know, people who are... Um, I do think that there are people who were, could be, were assholes when they um, were insecure who could become loving when they're secure. I do believe in that potential for growth. But there, I guess my point is, uh, yeah, there will always be assholes, you know, but (laughs) yeah, there will always be assholes is a good, is a good addendum to, to, uh, to, to any appeal to these, uh, better angels of our nature, I suppose the, Mm -hmm. um, let me run through this in a stepwise manner, uh, safety. I think that like, uh, as we're moving through your, uh, and obviously correct me if I'm getting off of your, your reconstruction of all this, but it seems like safety is the bottom. Or not, I know we were trying not to do a ladder, but safety is, seems to be an incredible basic need, but it probably would be very easy to, to think of safety in a way that maybe you're not thinking of it. So when you think of that as a placeholder, as a, as a uh, category, a thing with brackets around it of a basic need, what is it that you're describing? The need to have a, a lack of unpredictability in your environment or to have predictability in your environment to a certain degree that your environment makes sense, um, that, uh, you feel safe, you feel supported, um, you've to, you to a, to a certain degree, you feel as though, uh, uh, there's not just constant, uh, 
harshness and unpredictability in your environment where you don't know if you're going to eat the next day. You don't know whether or not you're going to be killed the next day. Um, you know, that, that there, that you, you know, that you can kind of relax in, in, in being so concerned about those things. And you, you're right that this allows us to take risks. So this is the, the, the consistency and the stability and the security all wrapped into one, uh, gives you like that baseline to go, okay, now I can take a risk. Now I can like, um, I mean, it reminds me of when they show, and, and I think this segues into the, that's the second part of how you talk about it. The, you see the, the baby who ventures out a little bit from the mom and then comes back again. I remember watching those videos when we talked about attachment styles and I've never forgotten that image because I, I have, um, I was very lucky to have parents that gave me a secure attachment style or at least what feels like it. And, having met many people who are, are differently oriented, I like, um, I had no idea how chaotic and how traumatic, um, uh, and how long lasting it could be to have a parent who did not offer that, uh, who, who offered the opposite of that. Um, if you could talk for just a second about what, how attachment styles relate to safety and how that persists across lifetime. Well, there's actually a small correlation between early attachments pattern and, and adulthood attachment. Um, our adult attachment styles are really influenced by our life, lifelong experiences and relationships. Um, and on the whole, uh, have we been in relationships where we have felt as though people have been for, there for us in times of need um, or not? Um, there's also a correlation between certain personality traits and uh, our attachment uh, tendencies. Um, people who score very, very high in neuroticism um, tend to have an anxious, score high in an anxious attachment um, where they uh, are always uh, feeling like uh, they're insecure about the relationship and they're, they can come across as very needy. Um, uh, disagreeable people tend to you know, cause score high an avoidant attachment style, you know, uh, like I don't really need anyone, you know, screw people. <laughs> um, so you can see personality dynamics play a role there as well. But, um, but the, the fact remains that none of us are completely securely attached. Uh, it's much better to think about this in terms of, uh, continuum than types. So, uh, we're, we're, uh, um, all of us are somewhere in, in terms of our, Anxious, anxious attachment and in our avoidant attachment and these things can change and our and our placement on those dimensions can change throughout our lives based on our uh, experiences and relationships if we have a delightful relationship where the person's really attentive attentive to our needs um, we can start to rethink our schemas so this is this is a huge because i you know i think i often see this when it's talked about or when it's written about that, this is just your setting, like this is your type. And, uh, I feel like you're making an argument that, or you're making an argument from evidence that you can change. Uh, you're not locked into a, I am an anxious avoidant individual and that is who I am for the rest of my life. Is that what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> that's uh, do you, uh, do you know that's astonishing? Cause it, cause that will astonish people. Yeah, I, I know that there's just so many misconceptions about this stuff, and that's you know that's why I wrote about that in my book, um, to get the word out. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you let's say you are someone who maybe your therapist has told you this, or you've de you derived it from some books that you are 
avoidant or you're anxious or whatever it is, you're not secure, which is what you think you want to be. Uh, how do you go about making the moves that help you change that about yourself? Um, I mean, I think that couples counseling can be very helpful. Um, you know, being, being with an attentive partner who understands your triggers because the people with anxious attachment, um, they only have, they only have particular triggers, uh, avoid an attachment, particular triggers, um, uh, those who score high in those dimensions. So, um, really being with a sense having a sensitive partner can mean, can mean all the difference in the world. Um, if you have a partner who is the opposite of sensitive, uh, let's say you're a partner who's high uh, narcissism, um, and you have and you're dealing with some of these issues. It can make them worse, and start to make you doubt your own self to a large degree. Wow, that's important. Um, the let me go because we don't have infinite time. Let me move to the second thing: connection. There's a place that you talk about, Ikaria, if I'm saying that correctly, where people live mm -hmm. a whole long time. Um, and it seems to be that there is something very particular to their culture that a lot that is affecting that. And it is something related to connection. What's going on there? Um, well, they treat their old people in that culture really well. First of all, um, they don't just leave them to die. They integrate them into society. And, uh, and, uh, there's a lot, well, there's lots of, things about their their cultures is great i mean uh they they, they have a very high life expectancy um some people uh they say well we just forget to die <laughs> because they're so they're so engaged um in the social fabric of of their existence you talk about the longevity being related to these they have so many intimate positive relationships with each other um that are stable and you say this these are important tenants to stability, um, positivity, intimacy, and then you sort of break it into belonging and intimacy. Belonging, I feel like the way you described it, belonging is sort of, they feel like one is is drawing something from your group and one is giving something to your group. It felt, it felt that was sort of the construction of it. What is the interplay between belonging and intimacy in, in this whole idea of connection? One can belong to something that... Uh, make it in the sense of they're part of like a group, but it's not a mutual relationship. You know, the, uh, the group likes you to the extent to which you agree with them. You know, as if you belong to a political organization, you know, they, 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 they're reducing you to a single dimension. Um, and then you try to, uh, the first second you, you are dissident and be like, you know, I don't really agree with that. Um, see, see how much there's a relationship there. You know, they're like, goodbye. <laughs> um, so, uh, intimacy is, is, is something deeper, um, where two people, um, have a, have an appreciation of each other's whole self, not just one side of themselves. And there's a, an unconditional positive regard, uh, which as a term comes from Carl Rogers, a mutual, uh, mutual friend of ours that we've never met. <laughs> That's true. I this I was very happy to see unconditional positive regard. For for someone who's never heard this term before, what is unconditional positive regard? Hmm. It's it's uh, viewing someone with admiration and uh, appreciating their unique existence, not what they necessarily offer you, but what they offer on their own terms. Um, Carl Rogers said it's sort of like watching a beautiful sunset. And, uh, and not, not trying to change the sunset. You know, when we watch a sunset, we don't try to think, oh, 
if only we change the hue a bit more orange, it would be more beautiful. Or, or let's uh, move the left side up a little bit more. Um, you just admire a beautiful sunset. And uh, people can be beautiful if you uh, can admire them. Most people. <laughs> I think about these two things. Uh, I think about this idea of connection and safety and the, and the interplay between the two. And of course, your model, everything is an interplay instead of it being a stepwise ladder. Um, and then you throw in self-esteem. And I was honestly surprised that it would be in there because I know because self-esteem sometimes has its detractors and self-esteem can be something that has... Is, can be different culturally, you know, self-esteem is highly valued in, in Western society and not necessarily as highly regarded in more collective societies. But then, you know, I look at what you, what you have to say about it and you sort of have your own definition or your own, um, your own, uh, understanding of it, your own, um, your own perspective on it, which is, um, it involves relational yeah. social value, instrumental social value, mastery, all these things wrapped up into it, into some sort of sense of self-worth. How do all these things play together to you? What is your sort of take on the whole self-esteem angle? Well, I go to great pains to distinguish between self-esteem and uh, narcissism. First of all, there's there's a real important distinction to be made there. Um, a healthy self-esteem is one where you have a basic sense of self-worth and a sense of uh, competency or mastery um, that, that emerges naturally from real earned, earned sense of mastery, what, you, what you've actually done. Um, narcissism is, is quite a different beast. Um, you, it's usually imagined accomplishments um, that you start to think are true, um, and, um, and usually the, there's not a, a basic sense of self-worth. Um, people who score high in narcissism actually don't it depends on the flavor of narcissism so those who are grandiose narcissists or those who score high in grandiose narcissism um, have such a uh, inflated sense of their superiority when, when it comes to uh, achievement and power but they don't really care about themselves that much in terms of whether or not they're liked you know it's just not an important dimension to them um, but those who score high in vulnerable narcissism have a very fragile ego. Um, they their sense of self is constantly in flux and uncertain, um, and uh, and uh, and they tend to think they're entitled to special privileges because of their suffering, not necessarily because of something that they've done that's great. Um, so there's different kinds of narcissism, but but all all of it can be different differentiated from healthy self esteem, where you just feel like you're enough. You're enough, you know. It's like you take that for granted, and then that's your starting premise. This to me, I mean, I know I have people who are very important to me in my life. Who this is their central struggle. I feel like to feel like they're enough, or to feel like there's a. I have people who are very important to me in life who can't find their. They rank everyone else as better at pretty much everything they want to that, that they think, feel, and do, and they 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 are constantly comparing themselves to others. And even when they meet new people, that person is a person they compare themselves to, and they almost immediately find themselves lacking in in, in comparison to that person. What is what is the what do we do about working on our own self esteem? What is the healthiest most advantageous or the, 
I don't even know the right terminology. I don't even know the right. Here's something that's a problem with with you, Scott. Uh, I don't know the right words to use when I'm talking to you because I feel like the words that I'm using might be uh, bankrupt uh, because you have a tendency to want to re-evaluate all of this. And even the words we use to do the evaluation, sometimes I question myself, is is that even a good word to use anymore? Because I feel like it that word taints, filters, and lensifies things in a way that ruins what it is I'm trying to communicate. All I'm really trying to ask is like, how how do I build the kind of self esteem? How can we have a healthier self-esteem? Yeah, how do we do that? How do I make how is how do I feel like I'm enough? Or how do I encourage someone who's important to me to feel like they're enough? It's a beautiful question. Um, I, I, I wish I, I had the magic bullet, but a, a really important way of stabilizing your self-esteem is to shed your perfectionism and to shed this notion that you must be perceived as perfect and, 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 uh, and without flaws at all times. Um, you know, uh, an interesting paradox. I don't know if it's a paradox, really, but it could be. Um, people who score high in vulnerable narcissism are are so scared of actually showing their vulnerability. Whereas people who are quite cool showing their vulnerability tend to be the least narcissistic and vulnerable in terms of their self-esteem. Um so I think it's just it it you know the greatest source of connection is is uh, is being vulnerable with someone and uh, and uh, showing your imperfections and 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 exploring the world and and doing the best you can um, knowing that there's uncertainty um, but getting out of your comfort zone um, I mean live your life would be my answer. <laughs> uh, I I just want to I just want to do a heroic dose of mushrooms with you, Scott. Uh, the, the ex, a, what? What a, a, a heroic dose of, of psilocybin. That's what I want to do with you. Scott. <laughs> the, the, uh, that sounds fun. Cause I feel, I feel, uh, as I don't know if anyone's ever told you this before, even though we're over zoom, like I feel the places where I am still armored against having a connective experience in your presence. Mm-hmm. Like I feel it. Like I, I feel Why? your urgency because you are, uh, I feel this, in a lot of these ways, you, you, you're farther along the arc than I am. And so I feel the distance between me and where you're at in some of these regards. And so therefore, I feel vulnerable in your presence just without you even mm-hmm. doing anything. You just, you're just being yourself. And I'm like, ah, I'm performative in some regard here, performative mm-hmm. in some regard there. And that's just, that's coming across in the Zoom. That's coming across in the video. Amazing. Well, that's a fascinating observation. I'm going to actually meditate on that after this. <laughs> uh, me too. <laughs> me too. Uh, because it's been part of my journey to like avoid. My, I've 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 come from a very hardcore Southern family. Uh, my dad is a Vietnam vet, PTSD. He was pretty narcissistic in a, in the vulnerable kind of way, uh, and I learned. I picked up a lot of how to be a person from that. And when I went through therapy uh, for the first time, there was a lot of that in there. They were like, you know, you weren't raised, you were trained or you're like, you're they're like, my therapist is like, I don't know if you're a narcissist, but you, you, you use a lot of narcissistic coping mechanisms. And I'm like, eh, so like, 
it's been a uh, re like I think like that's why I'm compelled by this so much because I feel like I have the most to learn from it. The, the largest pockets of my own ignorance are manifested in this side of the exploration of what it means to be a person to me, at least personally, I connect to it in that way. That's great. Um, you're, you're showing vulnerability. So I feel like kudos. Um, I, um, I personally had a lot of vulnerable narcissism in my twenties and even in high school, once I got out of special ed, to, I, I sort of had that attitude. I'm going to prove them all wrong. You know, uh, uh, that's, and, uh, I feel like I'm it, still it a little me. bit in there, my friend. It I can feel serve like a person conservative that's not necessarily a bad thing i certainly feel a lot of that like i got to do a lecture i remember I, get, I got to do a lecture at harvard um i was invited there to do a lecture and i did i felt the most i felt both of these things at the same time because i i did this little thing where i did a, a presentation i used the the um peter wason um confirmation bias game and i got neuroscientist in an audience at Harvard to commit confirmation bias in front of me. And I did have this very evil laugh feeling inside of me. Like, see, I come from a trailer in the woods and look, look what I did. Look what I did to you. But at the same time, I had this I other insane humility feeling of like, I cannot believe like my grand, like my whole, like this is, I'm doing this for my whole family. I mean, nobody in my family was ever going to even walk in this room in their entire life. And I get to do that. And I felt that, this, I felt the charge of these two competing things where I was like, I, sh I showed you and also, wait, I should be really grateful for this. And it was very strange. And I think I still walk with that. I think I still walk with these two competing parts of me at all times. Totally. Totally. We, we, you may, you may always, that may always be the case and that's okay. That's okay. Um, I think it's just having the awareness of it, you know, like meditating on that be like, huh, that's an interesting duality I have. Um, being curious about it, lean into the curiosity about it, because it's uh, it's still it's part of you. It's part of your unique, um, the quirkiness that is you. You don't don't, don't you don't want to get rid of who, your own your own unique, <laughs> uh, juxtaposition of traits. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I have it's very rare in an interview where I'm like hmm, hmm, hmm. Yeah. So exploration is fun that we're in that domain. Uh, there are two kinds of exploration you talk about: behavioral and cognitive. Uh, I liked this part of the what you were talking about because I feel I felt like, oh yeah, that's me all the way. I hope, but I, then again, it might be a a forer effect kind of thing where everybody thinks that when they read it. But um, you see, exploration is one of these fundamental needs, or these one of fun, fundamental holes that must be patched in the boat. Or we can turn that metaphor upside down, and it's something that your boat should have on it if you want to sail the seas, um, which is literally the exploration part of all this. What Just, just to, to sort of check this off the list, what is the difference between a behavioral exploration and cognitive exploration? Um, you know, the behavioral exploration is kind of like Christopher Columbus had, you know, like setting sail, like charting new territories, uh, being an adventure seeker, you know, mountain climbing, jumping from airplanes. Um, uh, having social curiosity uh, and engaging with people. But um, the cognitive exploration domain incorporates our intellect, our imagination, um, our, uh, our inner world of exploration. There are a lot of people who uh, are, are low in cognitive exploration, I should say. <laughs> yeah, well, 
Sure. Um, like, like you know, like the jackass people, they were very high in behavioral exploration, but not so much in cognitive exploration. That's good. I like that a lot. Steve-O is a good – Steve-O is your example of behavioral exploration. Yeah. Uh, and then cognitive exploration is is openness – it's it's I think it's is, is I, mean, I might be wrong about this, but there's like this sense that yes I read I read everything I find, but you but you don't like uh, I bet you aren't reading everything in front of you. So the true cognitive exploration is really being open to to like this might have value or this might be something worth looking at across the board. Um, getting over yourself is a lot. A lot of these a lot of these by the way feel like get over yourself is a is a big tenet of this uh, this this version of the of the. Um, a reimagining of the hierarchy. That'd be a good book title. That'd be a good book title. (laughs) (laughs) Let me get to love because I think this one is, um, this, I had not heard of any of this before. This was the thing that had the most uh, new information for me. You're talking about love is more fulfilling in Maslow's estimation. And it's not based on deficiency. Maslow distinguished between needing, needing love and unneeding love. Um, those that, uh, need love, uh, usually need it to fulfill a hole in their heart, um, a, a real deficiency motivation um, of what they lack. Um, but those with unneeding love um, tend to paradoxically get more love from others, um, even though they, uh, they need it less, um, because they tend to admire others. They tend to have this be love, what Mazda called love for the being of others. Um, being love, or be love for short. Um, those who are be-loving people um, really do appreciate people on their own terms and appreciate the unique sacredness of each individual um, and uh, uh, tend to have the characteristics of what my, my colleagues and I call the white triad. Um, you know, there's a, real, there's a real engagement with the world um, not for what people can bring to us and fulfill fulfill in our own holes but um but but what uh there's there's nothing that we want out of it you know and uh if you can reach that state of being um i think you're you'll be much more likely to uh to to get out of life uh more fulfilling uh meaningful uh engagement with it but also uh attract uh, more meaningful engagement as well from others. And this light triad is 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 it kindness, humility, forgiveness? Is that the light triad? Um, it's no, but I like those three. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Where I don't know where you guys came up with that one. I don't I know. I, I'm just trying to I'm trying to figure out what the opposite of the dark triad. The uh, which I think that's is that sociopathy, Machiavellianism, and uh, psychopathy, psychopathy, uh, narcissism. N- Narcissism, narcissism, Machiavellianism, sociopathy. Uh, what? So, what is the light triad? I can. Um, I was going to say, go, you can take the test uh, at scottperrykaufman.com, and it'll tell you where you are on that placement. Yeah, the light triad incorporates Kantianism, so um, seeing people as ends, ends in themselves, not as meaning to an end, um, uh, Mac, uh, which is the opposite of Machiavellianism. Um, uh, humanism, seeing the uh, dignity and worth of each individual, treating individuals as individuals, as sacred individuals, and um, faith in humanity, really thinking that at, at its basic level, humans are basically good. And these are essential, 
does these are essential to be love if I'm getting from hearing you correctly are they're a big component of someone who is who yeah. may just sort of innately has the ability to move into that um yeah let me move on to purpose this being sort of like I think people understand what you mean when you say purpose this nucleus of your life this this calling this urge this a path but the thing that I wanted to talk about while I, that I have you in front of me is the um, what do you do when that's not what you're like? I think, I guess that's a two, two part question. One is, should that be, should your work, should the thing that you do to, to earn life tokens, to purchase food and shelter, should that also be your purpose? And if, and then I don't know what the answer to that is, but also if it ain't, what should you do? Well, the, your purpose, anyone can have a purpose. If, if you don't know what your purpose is, you're just not listening uh, to all the unmet needs of others. Um, you know, uh, Viktor Frankl often talked about this. Um, it's the call from others uh, is a purpose. Um, it's not something that lies within you, you know. Um, it, where does your skill set match what uh, what you can contribute to in, in society? And, and, um, and, and what are, uh, my gosh, there's so many unmet needs right now in this world from others, you know, and, um, you can have a purpose today if you want one easy. Uh, <laughs> this is okay. Yeah. Easy. Sure. This is like the fundamental struggle of most of the people that are important to me. The, what is my purpose? Why am I even doing that's because this? Because they're so, that's the, that's because they're so self self-focused. This is, this is the whole point of my book. Well, let's, I can't believe you're just going to answer that and just walk away. It's like the call to purpose doesn't lie within you. It's in the needs of others. How do I, how yeah. do I connect to this? How do I, what is my first step? Watch the news. <laughs> uh, read, like get outside yourself. Um, get into, uh, get into the world and, uh, and see, um, all the different ways that people are suffering right now. There's no shortage of ways that people are having their safety needs unmet or having their connection needs unmet or having their self-esteem needs unmet. Um, and how can you um, bring more joy and light into the world? Um, there's a million ways that you can do that. Um, and, it, it, you know, people who are so focused on them, their own, um, in, the, in their own head, and in their own in their own ego, um, uh, tend to maybe struggle with finding a purpose. But but people who um, get out and engage in the world and see all the different ways that that you can make a change uh, right now at this very moment. You know, just sign up for a soup kitchen. You suddenly have a purpose. <laughs> hmm. So, like, do Habitat for Humanity. Get a, do a, a soup kitchen. Just put your toe in the water of serving well even just if, if you're trying to get out of a rut you know of, of oh i lack purpose like smile at a stranger on the street make someone's day talk to your starbucks barista and and ask her what she's doing and leave her or him um you know like feeling like they mattered um that's that could that that be enough of a purpose in life, a purpose to existence. If that was all you did in your life, there that would be a pretty darn worthy existence. 
One of the things that I find very compelling about talking to you is that these are very challenging ideas, but I don't know if they are. Like they feel challenging. They have the they have the texture mm. of being challenging. And then I just think about it for fifteen seconds, and I'm like, well, that's not very. That just makes that just sounds okay. Uh, and exactly. So I'm exactly. wondering, like, what's pulling me in the direction of feeling that it's challenging? I don't know even. Uh, well, the the ego. <laughs> <laughs> the the ego wants to constantly do more 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 be better uh, be better than it think it thinks in its own language it has its own language system um and if you can get out of that language system um just your whole world opens up to you i think i mean look i'm not there i mean i, I don't claim to have been uh, i'm not the buddha um but um but I can see it, you know, I can see, I can see how it's the case. Hmm. I'm having that thing in this conversation and we'll stop here at transcendence, but I, um, you know, you know, you do a psychedelic and you and you feel like, you know, everything for about three seconds <laughs> and then you're like, Oh, that's true. Fuck, I can't, I lost it. Or I, or it was too, it was inarticulable or it was outside of language or it was outside of there. Were, everything had, it was like the, the ocean had, there's a snapshot of the ocean and then it went back. Then it, everything was, everything's moving. There's too many things moving that there's no way I can get back to that, but it happens. Every I time. can't, I can't tell you how much I can relate to that. Even just, um, like right now, uh, quite frankly, for some reason I have a headache and I'm feeling nauseous and, um, and, and, and I noticed that like, uh, when I get that way and it's usually because I ate something that does not agree with me. Um, I, um, it's very easy for one's perceptions of the reality to be clouded by deficiency. And I guess I'm just really uh, astute to this distinction that, that Maslow so beautifully made, which I've been trying to, to carry on that torch in any way that I can between the B realm and the D realm. Um, it's so easy when we're in the D realm to forget that the B realm exists, but it's still there. I don't know what I'm going to do myself after this conversation. Um, I, I called you because I wanted to talk about genius, but I didn't expect to have uh, some sort of um, strange spiritual break awakening. I didn't expect to have a spiritual <laughs> awakening to, this afternoon over Zoom, uh, which brings us to transcendence, which is uh, I love that one of the things I do like about you is because I'm the same way. I do feel like a lot of what um, science is all about is trying to articulate the ineffable, and then at least agree on some terms so we can then say, okay, let's build on that until we have enough lay layers of abstraction that we're thinking really big things. But I also am compelled by the idea of like, there's danger in that. And because um, I know I have a book that I've just finished about uh, persuasion. And, and the, one of the big things in that book is what is a, what is belief? What is the definition of belief? And the very first person I asked that, uh, um, Professor uh, Professor James Alcock, I think is his name. He, who studies belief, and he's been studying for forty five years. I asked him, "How do you define belief?" And he was like, ah, "That's a really tough question." I'm like, "How can that be true? This is what you study." Uh, and he's like, "That's why it's hard to define." And um, yeah, and I was the first yeah. time someone ever sort of said that to me, and I realized that is the danger of putting you know the brackets around a thing. And uh, I like that. Maslow had 35 plus definitions for transcendence. Uh, and then you come along and add a lot, like at least 35 more. So it's really not important that we have a single line or a single paragraph, but it's, it is good to 
talk about it and think about it, meditate on it until you have a sort of feel for it. Um, that's all I'm going to be asking for here is, is my final question to you in this, uh, about your book called Transcendence. You take all of these things we, we were just covering, including things we could never get to because we only have so much time, but like safety, connection, self-esteem, exploration, love, D-love, B-love, purpose. We didn't talk about peak experiences, but experiences where you completely lose yourself within in them, these experiences of awe. You take all these things together and you have a recipe or you just have some ingredients that all kind of relate to this idea of transcendence. What are you talking about? This whole damn book, Transcendence, what is your like um, connection to this concept? Well, Maslow viewed self-actualization as really just a bridge uh, to self-transcendence. He said it's like self-actualization, it's like its function is really to erase itself. Um, if we can realize our potentialities to its fullest um that's that that means that we can stop forget thinking about ourselves, and we can start to use that to uh be, become synergistic with the world um, in such a way that the whole distinction between self and the world disappears the whole distinction between selfishness and unselfishness disappears because if what is good for you is automatically good for the society then the word selfish doesn't have any meaning anymore. So you want to self-actualize in such a way where the whole word self-actualization no longer has uh, any relevance in your life. <laughs> that's tr that's transcendence. <laughs> My compulsion is to keep hammering at you, but I'm not. Uh, I just think that's good to just leave it. I think it's good to just leave it. I don't know what else to say to you, Scott. I feel like uh, I don't know what I don't know what else to do. Um, I acknowledge that your uh, your meat vessel doesn't feel so good right now, um, so I'm going to part ways with you because you gave me two hours of your time because we talked about multiple things. But uh, I really appreciate you spending any amount of time with you whatsoever, and uh, I feel like I have a lot to learn from you. And I also feel like um, likewise you're doing a lot of you're doing really good work, uh, and I'm very happy you. that you've gained the attention of the zeitgeist um your signal has risen above the noise here recently and that often happens for all sorts of bazonkers reasons that we could probably never figure out but i'm really happy that yours has done so and they're doing something great with it uh, i think it makes total sense that daniel kahneman and you and you would meet up and um mm. i hope my real hope is that you bring humanism back into the fold and what we've learned in the interim when it was kind of in the back burner uh it can come back with full force. And I also feel like there's a, there is a, an ache and a hunger and a yearning for this perspective. I've seen it sort of be somewhat satiated by um, sort of alter, alter, alternative spiritual traditions, alternative in the sense that they are alternative to the modern era. Astrology coming back in a big way, Wicca coming back in a big way. Uh, I'd also, and mm. people that I know who are into that stuff, I, I know they're into it for the same reasons that I'm into humanist psychology. And so, I don't know, this, just have a big, hey, thanks for existing kind of thing happening here. <laughs> oh, thank you for existing. And uh, we, we should do this together. You know, let's bring humanistic psychology back, um, which uh, is not the same thing as humanism, though. You know, it's interesting. People 
say humanism and uh, humanism actually uh, you know there was a whole movement of humanism and um, and that was very tied to rationality and uh, it, it's a little bit different um, humanistic psychology is um, you know a whole philosophy that's uh, very much grounded in existential philosophy and um, and grounded in um, in Buddhism and uh, um, and and what it means to be a whole human, not just your rational side, you know, um, but your whole sort of um, uh, vital existence is, is is operating in full capacity, and uh, and that's what I think we should bring back. This is the part where I pretend to say bye, so just so there's that's that's in the podcast. But uh, I don't know what else to say. Mm-hmm. Just thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. It was a real delight talking to you. I, I just appreciate that you're taking all this time to talk, especially after a day where you talked to Daniel Kahneman. That's so cool. And um, I really appreciate all this. Any way I can be helpful to you in any way whatsoever, please let me know. Well, I got to talk to David McRaney today. So, uh, the, uh, no, it's a good day. It's a good day. Barry Kaufman's website is scottberrykaufman.com. That's K-A-U-F-M-A-N, where you can find a variety of tests related to self-actualization, the light versus dark triads, awe, selfishness, and more. He tweets at S.B. Kaufman, and his podcast is The Psychology Podcast. That's also the name of his YouTube channel. And in case you didn't catch it, the book that we talked about in this episode is Transcend, The New Science of self-actualization. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com where you can also find links to past episodes or you can go to Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, or Omni. Follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. We're also on Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this one-person operation, go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you can get posters and t-shirts and signed books and all sorts of other things. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace, and the other music in this episode was provided by Incompetech. Tell everyone you know about this show and check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. 
Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.